Chapter One of Mrs. Dalloway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wendy Katz Hiller, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. Chapter One. Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself, for Lucy had her work cut out for her. The doors would be taken off their hinges. Rumpelmeyer's men were coming. And then, thought Clarissa Dalloway, what a morning, fresh as if issued to children on a beach. What a lark! What a plunge! For so it had always seemed to her, when— with a little squeak of the hinges, which she could hear now, she had burst open the French windows and plunged at Burton into the open air. How fresh! How calm! Stiller than this, of course, the air was in the early morning, like the flap of a wave, the kiss of a wave, chill and sharp, and yet, for a girl of eighteen as she then was, solemn. Feeling as she did, standing there at the open window, that something awful was about to happen. Looking at the flowers, at the trees with the smoke winding off them and the rooks rising, falling, standing and looking, until Peter Walsh said, musing among the vegetables. Was that it? I prefer men to cauliflowers. Was that it? He must have said it at breakfast one morning when she had gone out onto the terrace. Peter Walsh. He would be back from India one of these days, June or July, she forgot which, for his letters were awfully dull. It was his sayings one remembered. His eyes. His pocket-knife his smile, his grumpiness, and, when millions of things had utterly vanished, how strange it was, a few sayings like this about cabbages. She stiffened a little on the curb, waiting for Dirtnall's van to pass. A charming woman, Scrope Purvis thought her, knowing her as one does know people who live next door to one in Westminster, a touch of the bird about her, of the jay, blue-green, light, vivacious, though she was over fifty, and grown very white since her illness. There she perched, never seeing him, waiting to cross, very upright. For having lived in Westminster, how many years now? Over twenty. One feels even in the midst of the traffic or waking at night, Clarissa was positive, a particular hush or solemnity, an indescribable pause, a suspense, but that might be her heart affected, they said, by influenza, before Big Ben strikes. There, out it boomed, first a warning, musical, then the hour, irrevocable. The leaden circles dissolved in the air. 
Such fools we are, she thought, crossing Victoria Street. For heaven only knows why one loves it so, how one sees it so, making it up, building it round one, tumbling it, creating it every moment afresh. But the veriest frumps, the most dejected of misery sitting on doorsteps, drink their downfall, do the same. Can't be dealt with, she felt positive, by acts of parliament for that very reason. They love life. In people's eyes, in the swing, tramp, and trudge, in the bellow and the uproar, the carriages, motor cars, omnibuses, vans, sandwich men shuffling and swinging, brass bands, barrel organs, in the triumph and the jingle and the strange high singing of some aeroplane overhead was what she loved. Life. London. This moment of June. For it was the middle of June. The war was over, except for someone like Mrs. Foxcroft at the embassy last night, eating her heart out because that nice boy was killed, and now the old manor house must go to a cousin, or Lady Baxborough, who opened a bazaar, they said, with the telegram in her hand. John, her favorite, killed. But it was over, thank heaven, over. It was June. The king and queen were at the palace. And everywhere, though it was still so early, there was a beating, a stirring of galloping ponies, tapping of cricket bats, Lords, Ascot, Ranelagh, and all the rest of it, wrapped in the soft mesh of the grey-blue morning air, which, as the day wore on, would unwind them and set down on their lawns and pitches the bouncing ponies, whose forefeet just struck the ground and up they sprung, the whirling young men and laughing girls in their transparent muslins who, even now, after dancing all night, were taking their absurd woolly dogs for a run. And even now, at this hour, discreet old dowagers were shooting out in their motor cars on errands of mystery, and the shopkeepers were fidgeting in their windows with their paste and diamonds, their lovely old sea-green brooches in eighteenth-century settings to tempt Americans. But one must economize, not buy things rashly for Elizabeth. And she, too, loving it as she did with an absurd and faithful passion, being part of it, since her people were courtiers once in the time of the Georges, she, too, was going that very night to kindle and illuminate, to give her party. But how strange, on entering the park, the silence, the mist, the hum, the slow-swimming happy ducks, the pouched birds waddling. And who should be coming along with his back against the government buildings, most appropriately, carrying a despatch box stamped with the royal arms, who but Hugh Whitbread, her old friend Hugh, the admirable Hugh? "'Good morning to you, Clarissa,' said Hugh, rather extravagantly, for they had known each other as children." Where are you off to? 
I love walking in London, said Mrs. Dalloway. Really, it's better than walking in the country. They had just come up, unfortunately, to see doctors. Other people came to see pictures, go to the opera, take their daughters out, but the Whitbreads came to see doctors. Times without number, Clarissa had visited Evelyn Whitbread in a nursing home. Was Evelyn ill again? Evelyn was a good deal out of sorts, said Hugh, intimating by a kind of pout or swell of his very well-covered, manly, extremely handsome, perfectly upholstered body. He was almost too well-dressed always, but presumably had to be with his little job at court, that his wife had some internal ailment, nothing serious, which, as an old friend, Clarissa Dalloway would quite understand without requiring him to specify. Ah, yes, she did, of course. What a nuisance, and felt very sisterly and oddly conscious at the same time of her hat. Not the right hat for the early morning. Was that it? For Hugh always made her feel, as he bustled on, raising his hat rather extravagantly and assuring her that she might be a girl of eighteen, and of course he was coming to her party tonight, Evelyn absolutely insisted, only a little late he might be after the party at the palace, to which he had to take one of Jim's boys. She always felt a little skimpy beside Hugh, schoolgirlish but attached to him, partly from having known him always. But she did think him a good sort in his own way, though Richard was nearly driven mad by him, and as for Peter Walsh, he had never to this day forgiven her for liking him. She could remember scene after scene at Burton, Peter furious, Hugh not, of course, his match in any way, but still not a positive imbecile, as Peter made out, not a mere barber's block, when his old mother wanted him to give up shooting or to take her to bath, he did it, without a word. He was really unselfish, and as for saying, as Peter did, that he had no heart, no brain, nothing but the manners and breeding of an English gentleman— that was only her dear Peter at his worst, and he could be intolerable, he could be impossible, but adorable to walk with on a morning like this. June had drawn out every leaf on the trees. The mothers of Pimlico gave suck to their young. Messages were passing from the fleet to the Admiralty. Arlington Street and Piccadilly seemed to chafe the very air in the park and lift its leaves hotly, brilliantly, on waves of that divine vitality which Clarissa loved. To dance, to ride, she had adored all that. For they might be parted for hundreds of years, she and Peter. She never wrote a letter, and his were dry sticks. But suddenly it would come over her. If he were with me now, what would he say? Some days, some sights bringing him back to her calmly, without the old bitterness, which perhaps was the reward of having cared for people. 
they came back in the middle of St. James's Park on a fine morning. Indeed, they did. But Peter, however beautiful the day might be, and the trees, and the grass, and the little girl in pink, Peter never saw a thing of all that. He would put on his spectacles if she told him to. He would look. It was the state of the world that interested him. Wagner, Pope's poetry, people's characters eternally, and the defects of her own soul. How he scolded her! How they argued! She would marry a prime minister and stand at the top of a staircase, the perfect hostess he called her. She had cried over it in her bedroom. She had the makings of the perfect hostess, he said. So she would still find herself arguing in St. James's Park, still making out that she had been right, and she had, too, not to marry him. For in marriage a little license, a little independence there must be between people living together day in, day out in the same house, which Richard gave her, and she him. Where was he this morning, for instance? Some committee. She never asked what. But with Peter, everything had to be shared, everything gone into. And it was intolerable. And when it came to that scene in the little garden by the fountain, she had to break with him, or they would have been destroyed, both of them ruined, she was convinced. Though she had borne about with her for years like an arrow sticking in her heart the grief, the anguish, and then the horror of the moment when someone told her at a concert that he had married a woman he met on the boat going to India, never should she forget all that. Cold, heartless, a prude, he called her. Never could she understand how he cared. But those Indian women did, presumably. Silly, pretty, flimsy, nincompoops. And she wasted her pity, for he was quite happy, he assured her, perfectly happy, though he had never done a thing that they talked of. His whole life had been a failure. It made her angry still. She had reached the park gates. She stood for a moment, looking at the omnibuses in Piccadilly. She would not say of anyone in the world now that they were this or were that. She felt very young, at the same time unspeakably aged. She sliced like a knife through everything, at the same time was outside, looking on. She had a perpetual sense, as she watched the taxicabs, of being out, out, far out to sea and alone. She always had the feeling that it was very, very dangerous to live even one day. Not that she thought herself clever or much out of the ordinary. How she had got through life on the few twigs of knowledge Fräulein Daniels gave them she could not think. She knew nothing, no language, no history. She scarcely read a book now except memoirs in bed. And yet to her, it was absolutely absorbing. All this, the cabs passing, and she would not say of Peter, she would not say of herself, I am this, 
I am that. Her only gift was knowing people almost by instinct, she thought, walking on. If you put her in a room with someone, up went her back like a cat's, or she purred. Devonshire House, Bath House, the house with the china cockatoo, she had seen them all lit up once, and remembered Sylvia, Fred, Sally Seaton, such hosts of people, and dancing all night, and the wagons plodding past to market, and driving home across the park. She remembered once throwing a shilling into the serpentine. But everyone remembered. What she loved was this. Here, now, in front of her, the fat lady in the cab. Did it matter, then, she asked herself, walking toward Bond Street, did it matter that she must inevitably cease completely? All this must go on without her. Did she resent it? Or did it not become consoling to believe that death ended absolutely, but that somehow, in the streets of London, on the ebb and flow of things, here, there, she survived. Peter survived, lived in each other, she being part, she was positive, of the trees at home, of the house there, ugly, rambling all to bits and pieces as it was, part of people she had never met, being laid out like a mist between the people she knew best, who lifted her on their branches as she had seen the trees lift the mist, but it spread ever so far, her life, herself. But what was she dreaming as she looked into Hatchard's shop window? What was she trying to recover? What image of white dawn in the country, as she read in the book spread open, Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. This late age of the world's experience had bred in them all, all men and women, a well of tears, tears and sorrows, courage and endurance, a perfectly upright and stoical bearing. Think, for example, of the woman she admired most, Lady Bexborough, opening the bazaar. There were Jorick's jaunts and jollities, there were Soapy Sponge and Mrs. Asquith's memoirs, and big game shooting in Nigeria, all spread open. Ever so many books there were, but none that seemed exactly right to take to Evelyn Whitbread and her nursing home, nothing that would serve to amuse her and make that indescribably dried-up little woman look, as Clarissa came in, just for a moment, cordial, before they settled down for the usual interminable talk of women's ailments. How much she wanted it, that people should look pleased as she came in, Clarissa thought, and turned and walked back toward Bond Street, annoyed because it was silly to have other reasons for doing things. Much rather would she have been one of those people like Richard, who did things for themselves, whereas, she thought, waiting to cross, half the time she did things not simply, not for themselves, but to make people think this or that, 
perfect idiocy, she knew, and now the policeman held up his hand, for no one was ever for a second taken in. Oh, if she could have had her life over again, she thought, stepping onto the pavement, could have looked even differently. She would have been, in the first place, dark like Lady Bexborough, with a skin of crumpled leather and beautiful eyes. She would have been, like Lady Bexborough, slow and stately, rather large, interested in politics like a man, with a country house, very dignified, very sincere, instead of which she had a narrow pea-stick figure, a ridiculous little face, beaked like a bird's. That she held herself well was true, and had nice hands and feet, and dressed well, considering that she spent little. But often now this body she wore—she stopped to look at a Dutch picture—this body, with all its capacities, seemed nothing, nothing at all. She had the oddest sense of being herself invisible, unseen, unknown, there being no more marrying, no more having of children now, but only this astonishing and rather solemn progress with the rest of them up Bond Street, this being Mrs. Dalloway, not even Clarissa any more, this being Mrs. Richard Dalloway. Bond Street fascinated her. Bond Street early in the morning in the season, its flags flying, its shops, no splash, no glitter, one roll of tweed in the shop where her father had bought his suits for fifty years, a few pearls, salmon on an ice block. That is all, she said, looking at the fishmongers. That is all, she repeated pausing for a moment at the window of a glove shop where, before the war, you could buy almost perfect gloves. And her old Uncle William used to say, a lady is known by her shoes and her gloves. He had turned on his bed one morning in the middle of the war. He had said, I have had enough. Gloves and shoes. She had a passion for gloves, but her own daughter— her Elizabeth cared not a straw for either of them. End of chapter 1